0: Let's open our Bibles or navigate on our tablets or phones to Jeremiah chapter 38. We've been looking at this amazing Old Testament prophet one chapter at a time. We're in chapter 38, verses 1 through 28. The topic we'll find there this morning, the princes of Jerusalem throw Jeremiah into a pit in order to stop him from preaching. The title of our message, Pit Stopped. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, every week you've uh, blessed us with a sense of your presence as we have asked to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church and to us as individuals. And This week is no different, Lord. We desire to have this word alive in our hearing and in our hearts. It's something only you can do, but it's certainly something you can do and desire to do. Help us to see Jesus in these words, his love for us, your grace, the mercy that's abundantly available to us, love, acceptance, forgiveness, peace, joy, all of the things, Lord, that you desire to bless us with. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. 127 Hours is the film that tells the survival story of canyoneer Aaron Ralston, who became trapped by a boulder in an isolated slot canyon in Blue John Canyon, southeastern Utah. April 2003, he was eventually forced to amputate his own right arm to free himself. How many of you saw the movie? Not me. He fell and his arm was pinned by a boulder. He discovered that by applying enough force to his forearm, he could break it so that he could cut through it. He gathered the will to do so and eventually severed his arm with a dull knife, fashing a crude tourniquet out of the insulation from his camelback tube and using a carabiner to tighten it. He then made his way out of the canyon where he was forced to rappel down a 65-foot rock face and then hiked several miles before exhausted and covered in blood, he finally ran into a family on a day hike. Family sent for help and he was rescued by a Utah Highway Patrol helicopter. Now we commonly use expressions that describe predicaments like Ralston's in order to explain some personal difficulty we might find ourselves in. We say that we or someone are between a rock and a hard place, which I'll never think of the same again. (laughs) Or we say that our life is the pits. That's all well and good as long as we realize one huge difference between our personal predicaments and the physical ones like Ralston's. In his case, he needed to do everything he could to save himself because he knew no help was coming. In our cases, as Christians, we know help is always coming. It is more than coming, it's already available to us because Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us. No matter how dark or how deep our pit, the Lord is there. Now, Jeremiah, we're gonna find, was quite literally thrown into a pit. His physical predicament can be seen as a figure of our personal predicaments when we find ourselves in some pit. A lot of these Old Testament situations though they're real and physical, have spiritual connotations. And so Jeremiah in the pit is going to remind us of when life is the pits. And just as the Lord sent Jeremiah a servant, he always has one or more servants for us in the pit. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, when you are in the pit, God will send you a servant. Number two, when you're out of the pit... God will send you as his servant. Let's take a look, first of all, at life in the pit, verses 1 through 13. Our story is taking place in the final months of the third and final siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonian armies, sometimes called the Chaldeans. Babylon was like the ancient Roman Empire, they conquered many different peoples, and so... uh, It's the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem and the particular army was made up of these people called the Chaldeans. Mounds of dirt are being built up so that the soldiers can go over the walls of Jerusalem. Battering rams are hammering at the gates of Jerusalem. Inside the walls, famine and disease and pestilence are claiming many lives. In the pit that Jerusalem had become, there were two schools of thought. Verse one, now, Shephatiah the son of Matan, Jedaliah, the son of Peshur, Hukal the son of Shelemiah, and Peshur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, thus says the Lord, he who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes over to the Chaldean shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princes said to the king, please let this man, let Jeremiah be put to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them, for this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. Jeremiah claimed that God had made a way for them out of the pit. All you had to do was have faith in God and surrender. The princes listed here made a different assessment of the pit they were in. They thought they must fight to save themselves. Fight or faith, those were the two choices. If fight was going to prevail, then Jeremiah must be silenced because too many people were starting to listen to him and defect Then Zedekiah said to the king, or excuse me, then Zedekiah the king said, look, he is in your hand for the king can do nothing against you. This is a Pontius Pilate moment for Zedekiah. You remember Pilate? When the Jews were seeking to crucify Christ, they needed the uh, permission of the Roman authorities because they didn't have the right to put people to death. And Pilate, he didn't want to have anything to do with it and so he pretend washed his hands as if it were out of his hands but of course he did consent to it. He was responsible for it. You can't just wash your hands of something you're responsible for. Zedekiah was having a moment like that saying, well, you're gonna do whatever you wanna do anyway so I don't have anything to do with this. Pontius Pilate moments come in all of our lives. They may not be life and death moments but they are the times we must say and do what is right despite the real or perceived consequences of our words or actions. Verse six, so they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sank in the mire, If you're wondering what water would be doing in the dungeon, the dungeon is really a cistern. We've talked about this before. This is a different situation than he was in last chapter, different cistern. These cisterns are reservoirs for holding water that are hewn out of the ground and then covered over with plaster to make them somewhat waterproof. It would have only a small, roundish opening at the top from which to draw out the stored water. This particular cistern had been exhausted of its water supply, probably on account of the long siege of Jerusalem. On its floor was a probably thigh-deep layer of mire. We might call it just mud or slime. Jeremiah was lowered into it, probably about 15 feet or so down, He sank in the mire up to his thighs. There would be no clean or dry spot anywhere in there to lie down or sit down. There was little to no light. It stank. In Jeremiah's other book, Lamentations, he mentions that rocks were occasionally thrown at him while he was in the pit, may have been this pit that he was talking about. The king himself had consented to him being put in the pit and powerful princes had carried out dropping him into the pit. This is about as hopeless a situation as you can imagine, except that some of you can imagine situations this hopeless because you've been in pits like that, not literally, but figuratively, or we might say spiritually, emotionally, personally. Some of you may be in such a pit right now and there doesn't seem to be any hope of delivery. You have the same two choices, faith or fight. Now we're prone to fight to thinking that no help is coming, so we must help ourselves. Though it's not in the Bible, even Christians tend to believe that God helps those who help themselves. You realize that's not in the Bible, don't you? Please tell me that you realize that. It's not First Thessalonians chapter one or anything like that. (laughs) But I was thinking about this, and I have to admit that even sometimes you know, even whether I've received counsel in this way or sometimes possibly even given it, sometimes we come across or we think that God really does help those that help themselves. And so people will be going through something, they'll be in some kind of a pit, between some rock and some hard place, and we will suggest the things they must do in order to get out, or the things they did in order to get in. And we have a tendency to put a lot of emphasis on the doing, on the behavior, on climbing out of the pit yourself. If you will do this, then God will honor that. And a lot of times I think we need to wait and analyze the situation, look at the situation, say, okay, you're in a pit. I don't know how you got there, you're in there, you're in this pit, what is God doing? What, how, what has he already provided for you in this pit? Because you're, you're not like Aaron Ralston. You're, you're not a person that's been abandoned in a pit, screaming for help, pin, pinned by a boulder, having to cut your own arm off. The Lord is there with you. And he's going to lift you out in ways that have already probably been revealed to you. And so we we don't want to ever come across as the kind of people who are saying, well, God will help you if you will help yourself. The whole idea is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. A few months ago in our studies in Jeremiah, we talked about how, you know, people say, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, you must have never read the Bible. None of these guys could handle any of these things. They couldn't handle the blessings, they couldn't handle the buffetings, if it wasn't for God. And so we need to get our minds screwed on straight here. You're in the pit, and God's there with you, and he's already provided for you the things that you need. And so let's quit fighting and have faith. Think of others who were in pits of sorts, Bible characters. Daniel, thrown into a pit, the den of lions. He survived the night with God's ever-present help. Before Daniel was thrown into that pit, his three friends were thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. They emerged without burns. They didn't even smell like smoke. That's because there was a fourth person with them in the furnace, a person Nebuchadnezzar thought looked like the son of God because guess what? It was the son of God. It was a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ walking with those three Hebrew boys. The psalmist knew God was with him in his pits. In Psalm 40, verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. God sent his servant to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Verse seven, now Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting in the gates of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king saying, my lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. He's likely to die from hunger in the place where he is for there is no more bread in the city. It would be hard to find a more unlikely source of help than Ebed-Melech. He was a foreigner, not even a Jew. He was a slave. He was an emasculated harem keeper, and just one of many. In order to help Jeremiah, he would have to abandon his post and rebuke the king in public in front of these princes, risking execution. Let me put it a different way. If you were Jeremiah and you even wanted to try and fight to rescue yourself, Ebed-Melech would be the last person in all of Jerusalem you would think to come to your aid. You wouldn't waste your one phone call on Ebed-Melech. He wouldn't be on your uh, speed dial at all. Jeremiah probably didn't even know this Ebed-Melech. Meaning that the one source of help God would raise up was someone known only to the Lord. God's help in the pits of life is not what we expect. But as we see in this next set of verses, it's always better than we expect. Verse 10, Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here 30 men with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. He not only pulled Jeremiah from the miry pit, he did it with compassion. He didn't want Jeremiah to get so much as a rope burn. And so he sent him padding for the ropes. Now listen to this. Ebed-Melech isn't even this guy's name. He's anonymous. We don't know his name. Ebed-Melech means the servant of the king. So it's not his name. It's not even a crazy name, it's just the Bible is going out of its way to say some servant of the king, an Ethiopian eunuch, one of many, who nobody really knows, who has to leave his post and risk execution, that's Jeremiah's only source of help and hope in this situation. God has a lot of servants he can dispatch to you in the pit you find yourself mired in. Now we read these Old Testament stories and we think, that's great. He'll send me a person like this Ethiopian eunuch. He'll send me an angel like he sent Daniel. Sometimes you're in an angel level pit. You know, there's different pits that we get ourselves in. There are pits you think, this is a pit where I need somebody. I need somebody to acknowledge me. I need somebody to pray with me. I, need, I just need another Christian. I need an Ebed Melech. I need a servant of the king. But then some of the pits you think, these people can't really help me, I need an angel. But you know, God, I have a guardian angel. Is he sleeping, is he you know, is he at coffee? You know, what's going on with my guardian angel? Um, some of your pits are so extreme, maybe you don't think this, but you think, Lord, you're gonna have to manifest yourself in this pit the way you did to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if I'm gonna get through this. We don't recognize the servants that God I'm saying sends, but are already with us. For example, we can miss the fact that God always sends his most powerful servant to us, always available to us, and that would be grace. Now, we think of grace as God's unmerited favor. You know, we get saved by grace through faith, and that's all true. But as you read through the Bible, you find out that grace is a powerful enabler, that I don't want to call it a force, but it is God's enabling power that sustains us in all things and through all things. God wants us to have the faith to believe that his grace is sufficient for anything at any time. Paul the Apostle, we don't know what the thorn in his flesh was that he prayed about three times. It seems clear that it was some terrible physical infirmity. Uh, some suggest that it was more of a spiritual infirmity or a spiritual attack because in, in that passage, it's called the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. It's probably a combination. It was bad, it was a pit. And he prayed about it and, and the Lord finally said to him after three times, he said, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul said, all right, that's all I needed to know. That this is a pit that I'm in, in which your grace is is my enabling power to endure it and to go on serving you. And then he goes on and talks about how he would glory in his weakness because it showed God's strength. And so Paul, nothing wrong with praying about getting out of that pit, but then God said, you're gonna be in this pit for the rest of your life and you're gonna have my grace and Paul realized that enabling grace that had always been present with him and for him. The problem with us is we'd rather have the angel. We'd rather have the ropes. We'd, we'd actually settle for less than God wants to do spiritually in our lives to be better off physically and materially. We can miss the fact that God always sends his most powerful servant, Grace, and Grace rarely comes alone to your pit. It's accompanied by mercy or peace or forgiveness or joy, usually by all of those spiritual things. This is how we need to think when we're between the rock and a hard place, when we're in the pit, when we're stuck fast in the mire. We need to think by faith, receiving grace, mercy, peace, forgiveness and joy, or any of the other very powerful spiritual servants that are ours by virtue of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And then you're thinking, well wait a minute, these Old Testament guys, they actually got delivered from their pits. So you're you're not telling the truth. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they talked to King Nebuchadnezzar, they said, "King, we are not gonna bow to your idol. You're gonna throw us in the pit and we're gonna be delivered from it by our Lord and Savior, our God. And then they said, but if not, we don't care anyway. If we burn, we burn. So they didn't care. The pit was the place where they were gonna make their stand for the power of God, for the grace of God. And they knew they could just as easily be delivered through the pit or from the pit as Uh, they would to be killed in the pit. And so it's not really about getting out of the pit all the time. Although if we're Christians and we're honest, you've been in pits that you've been delivered from. Maybe you want to call them trials now instead if we switch metaphors. You've been through trials that are over now. But at some point in your life, it dawns on you that there may be a trial or there may be a pit there may be a rock in a hard place that you're really never gonna be delivered from. For a lot of you, it's an illness. It's a lifetime debilitating illness that God could heal you from, but he has chosen not to. It's your thorn in the flesh, and, and the more you try and find and fight for deliverance, God has to just tell you, my grace is gonna have to be sufficient for you, and then you find your joy and your peace in those things. When our pits are personal, emotional, spiritual pits, it's most likely God rescues us through them, meaning we must endure them. But we never endure them without his servants to help us. God's servants render you mireproof, as it were. You're a mire-proof Christian. There's no pit that they can't handle. Now, as we go on in verses 14 through 28, when you're out of a pit, God sends you as his servant. God rescued Jeremiah so the prophet could go on preaching. Hard as it might be to believe, God still wanted Jeremiah to minister to Zedekiah. Harder still to imagine, Jeremiah was okay with it. He was willing to minister to Zedekiah. Verse 14, then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'm gonna ask you something, hide nothing from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, you're not gonna listen to me. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah saying, as the Lord lives who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Nothing wrong with Jeremiah asking for protection or trying to uh, solidify his position out of the cistern. It's not spiritual to have a death wish. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, your soul shall live. The city shall not be burned with fire. You and your house shall live. If you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, the city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from their hand. It was a clear choice, not difficult to understand, needed no interpretation People often argue that the Bible is unclear, subject to any number of interpretations. That's just not true when it comes to the most important issues that the Bible addresses. The most beloved, famous, and well-known of all the verses in the Bible to believers and non-believers is John 3.16. You don't need to applaud. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's nothing complicated about that. It's very clear. There's no need for interpretation. It can't be misunderstood. Even the youngest child can understand it and act upon it. You either believe in him and are saved or you don't and you perish. Very simple. So the next time somebody says to you, oh, the Bible's so complicated, no one can understand it, just quote John 3.16. You know it, they know it. And say, what's not to understand about that? You believe in Jesus, you live forever, you refuse to believe, you die forever, as it were, in hell, you perish. It's very simple. Verse 19, and Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans lest they deliver me into their hand and abuse me. Zedekiah's unbelief was account of his fear of man. That's a big one. People are afraid of how others will react to them if they follow Jesus Christ. They're afraid of losing face or of losing relationships. You just might lose face with men if you stand for Jesus Christ, but one day you'll be looking into the face of the Lord and it will be worth it. And you might lose relationships with some people if you make a stand for Jesus Christ. Many of you have had family shun you or even reject you because of your belief in Jesus Christ, Uh, especially if they come from a strong religious tradition that is not really Christian. It can be difficult uh, to be a Christian. The Lord recognized that when he was on the earth. He said, you're you're maybe gonna lose fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. He goes, but you're gonna gain those as well as you realize that you have a massive forever family of brothers and sisters, past, present, and future, who are going to share eternity with you. Verse 20, but Jeremiah said, they're not gonna deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you so it shall be well with you and your soul shall live. Don't you feel like begging people sometimes? I mean, you love your family, you love your friends, and you look at them and you, you know that if they don't get saved, they're they're headed for a Christless eternity, and you say, please, please just believe in Jesus Christ. What is so hard about that? If if you're wrong, you're really wrong. If I'm right. You can go to heaven forever. I mean, you just feel like, you know, I don't want to use this expression, but you want to knock some sense into people. It's so obvious that there is a God. It's obvious we're living in the last days. It's obvious that the Bible is alive and powerful. And yet people go their merry way. You feel like begging them. And then Jeremiah says, if you refuse to surrender... This is the word that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women shall say, your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your feet have sunk in the mire and they've turned away again. So they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon. You shall cause the city to be burned with fire." In one sense, Jeremiah is saying, do it for the sake of women and children who are going to suffer if you don't lead the surrender. Sacrificial living is an all-time low today. Our culture values the pursuit of individual happiness above almost everything else. People aren't even really sacrificing much for their children these days. I don't know how many couples, for instance, I've encouraged to work out their relatively minor, selfish marital problems to stay together for the sake of the children. Now I'm not talking about massive problems, abuse issues, or biblical reasons for divorce. I'm talking about, I hate to use the expression, but run of the mill marriage problems that people have. They're just not getting along. My husband's not very romantic. He never was. Let me lift you in on something. He never was. My wife, you know, she's not the girl I married. Really? Who said she was going to be? You know, those kinds of things. And they, you know, they get into their little problems and their issues and that kind of a thing. And then they want to get a divorce. And I'm, you know, let's go through. You don't have any biblical grounds for divorce. Let's work this out. And then they're still, you know, at odds with each other. And, and I used to be able to bring in the children. Say, let's let's look at Johnny and Janie. What's going to happen to Johnny and Janie when you guys get divorced? And now, what people always say to me, it's always the same thing. God just wants me to be happy, and when I'm happy, my children will be happy. You see, we're unhappy now. We have an unhappy home and my children are unhappy because of our unhappy home. But when we have no home, <laughs> when we have two homes and we create new relationships where people are unhappy, then everybody will be happy. And, and the bottom line is, I'm, I'm making a joke about this, but the bottom line is nobody says... I will sacrifice what I think is my personal happiness for the sake of my children's happiness because they want their mom and dad to stay together. They want to have a stable home. They don't understand what's going on. Even secular people, secular sources who are pro-divorce will tell you that it's really bad for children. It's a really affection. You have to really work hard to try and get them to be not screwed up. And a lot of you from personal experience, you know what I'm talking about. It messes with your mind. And so Jeremiah is saying, Zedekiah, would you please sacrifice your own, you know, whatever, your own happiness or whatever? Would you sacrifice that for the sake of women and children that people aren't slaughtered and, and mutilated and destroyed by the Chaldeans? And Zedekiah, well, I'm afraid what a few noblemen will do to me if I, if I surrender. And he held out. He let the city die. Verse 24, then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words and you shall not die. But if the princes here that I have talked with you and they come to you and say to you, declare to us now what you have said to the king and also what the king said to you, don't hide it from us and then we won't put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I presented my request before the king that he would not make me return to Jonathan's house to die there. Zedekiah is asking Jeremiah to withhold certain information from the princes. Would he do it? Then all the princes came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he told them according to all these words that the king had commanded, so they stopped speaking with him for the conversation had not been heard. Jeremiah covered for Zedekiah. Now, I don't want to overanalyze the ethics of his decision. There are some who criticize him, uh, saying that you know, half of a truth is a lie. He didn't really tell them what they talked about. He withheld from them. That's not the point here. He didn't really lie, but the the ethics of it for another time. The point we want to make is this. Obviously, we can't say for certain, but I see Jeremiah trying to keep a line of communication open with Zedekiah by which he might still convince the king, while there was yet time, to surrender to Babylon because it would spare so much human suffering. And so Jeremiah thought about the situation And he thought, if I can somehow not betray Zedekiah, but also keep my morals as a Christian, I'm gonna do it because Zedekiah is still, even though he's a jerk and a weakling, he's still a key player. And if he would surrender, so many people would live. We should try to do a greater good without compromising what we know to be true. We should keep lines of communication open Not at any cost, but within reason. I think this is where guys, special guys, you know, special in the sense that God uses them in a special way, but guys like Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, public Christian figures who are able to talk to kings and princes and presidents things that you and I are never going to be able to do, to be called into the Oval Office like Billy Graham has been for all of these presidents to pray with the President of the United States, to share Scripture, to witness to the President of the United States. Then people go around and they nitpick their life. Oh, he should have done this and he should have done that. I heard him say this. He actually waved to a Catholic. I hear that Franklin Graham drove by a Catholic church and didn't, you know, blow it up or whatever. And people, I know there's some real issues, don't get me wrong, but I think sometimes we think, oh, they, they compromised themselves. And I think that they didn't. They maybe, you know, from our perspective, they, they didn't do, you know, we'd like to think this is what I would do if I was talking to President Obama. I'd say, no, listen. I'll tell you right now, you wouldn't. I know what these guys did because that's what they always do. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, whether these presidents listen to them or get saved is another thing, but they want to keep that line of communication open. So that's what Jeremiah is doing. And it's amazing when you think of what a jerk Zedekiah was, how he had given Jeremiah over a couple of times to imprisonment and death, and now he's meeting with him in secret, asking him almost to lie, and Jeremiah still thinks, I still want to minister to this guy he could still get saved and affect other people. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 28, now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken, and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. That's a bittersweet postscript. Jeremiah was spared further persecution, but Zedekiah never did do the right thing. The city fell, meaning it was burned, and its citizens, many of them killed, others deported to Babylon. The pit, however, did nothing to quench Jeremiah's zeal, didn't cause him to tone down God's word at all. Add to that, he was not getting any younger, and I'm serious about that. He'd been at this for a long time with very limited success, and on the one hand, yes, all the things he said were gonna happen were about to happen, but if you're Jeremiah, you don't want them to happen, You've been saying for years, the Babylonians are coming, they're gonna burn the city, they're gonna destroy everything, carry us away captive. You don't get up in the morning and say, yeah, finally you're gonna see that I was right. I mean, you're terrified for the people and for the suffering, but he kept on strong till the end. It's a great reminder to us, go on serving the Lord with every breath until you take your last breath. Life is gonna be the pits. Whether you're in one right now or not, life is the pits. Recognize the king's servants. Let them lift you up, spiritually speaking, from the pit that you're in. Go on serving the king. Father, we thank you this morning for uh, your grace, Lord, which is an enabling power available to us in abundance for our time of need. And I want to pray for each of us, starting with myself and my family, Lord, and every family represented here, that we would realize your grace, that it is sufficient for us, not that it can be or it wants to be or it will be one day, but that right now it is. I pray that we would have the faith to believe that is true and that as we do, Lord, we would also find joy and peace, forgiveness all the other things, Lord, mercy that accompany grace. Bless your people, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right.